6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 8 through chapter 10, verse 4. We're in Isaiah. Last time we talked about uh, encryption. We talked about uh, chapter 7 and the politics that are revealed by the hidden encryptions in the first part of chapter 7. We also talked about the famous prophecy of the virgin birth in verse 14 of chapter 7. First time the virgin birth is hinted at is Genesis 3.15 when God declares war on Satan. And of course the prophecy in Isaiah is the dramatic one. We dealt with that last time. And if I... uh, memory serves me correctly, we got through the end of chapter 7, right? By the way, uh, I sometimes kid, you know, I always say that the book of Isaiah is written by Handel, right? And obviously I'm being flippant. But because I made that crack a couple of times, I thought, gee, I better do a little homework. And uh, turns out Handel, right, of course I'm referring to is his famous piece called the Messiah. We've, uh, we usually hear that around one of the major holidays, either Easter or especially Christmas. Turns out in about the 1730s, Handel did start undertaking biblical themes, something on Saul and, and uh, Israel and Egypt and other things. In 1741, get this, 1741, Handel was invited by the Duke of Devonshire to Dublin to write a piece. And this piece of music, which I think a full score, if you listen to the whole, not just excerpts, but the whole thing takes about three hours, he wrote that in two weeks. So you guys thought you were under pressure with deadlines? You know. Now I'm not that impressed because he had a lot of help on the lyrics. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, of course, it's quite a piece. Okay, so we're in Handel chapter 8. In chapter 8, Isaiah takes up again. Again, to get the context here, Isaiah is writing to and about Jerusalem and Judah, the southern kingdom. And by the way, I'd like to put something else to bed here too. As you know, after Solomon, there was Rehoboam and there was a civil war. Rehoboam and Jeroboam had their differences and the nation split in two. We have the northern kingdom, which is known as the house of Israel, and we have the southern kingdom known as the house of Judah. We classically visualize those two portions of the nation as ten tribes to the north and two tribes to the south, Judah and Simeon to the south, and the ten tribes in the north. And of course, as you know, the northern kingdom, Israel, fell into idolatry more quickly. If you plot this sequence of kings It goes from bad to worse. They made Samaria as their capital. They worshipped idols. God kept warning them through a variety of prophets and things. And about 722 B.C., the Assyrians conquer them, take them slaves, and that's the end of the northern kingdom. You never see it again. There are many prophecies in the Old and the New Testament that says they're going to be reunited. And, of course, that's millennial. The southern kingdom, the house of Judah, as it's called, has its succession of kings, and they're not a lot better, but there's an occasional one that shows a little more class than the others. But ultimately, they decline, and about a century after the northern kingdom falls, the southern kingdom falls to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Now, one of the things I keep running into, and I'm sure you have too, if you haven't, you will, 
There are those that talk about the lost ten tribes of Israel. And from that conception in literature emerge all kinds of rather interesting ideas that have just one small problem. They're not true. There is no such thing as the lost ten tribes. I don't know if you've heard that. How many have heard about the ten tribes of Israel? Okay. I'd like you to go with me into Second Chronicles about chapter 11. Now this is right at the time that Rehoboam and Jeroboam are having their big problem. Rehoboam being the king of Judah, the house of the south, and Jeroboam leading this revolt of the bunch in the north. We'll pick up the context, say, about verse 14 of Second Chronicles 11. For the Levites left their suburban lands and their possession and came to Judah and Jerusalem. Get the context now. First of all, recognize that the nation of Israel was divided territorially by tribe. In other words, when Joshua entered the land, they finally conquered the land. They divvied the land up by lot, and certain areas were allocated to the various tribes. That's one of the reasons why genealogies are so important in the Judaistic situation, because you never really sold land. When they speak of a sale, they really mean a lease, because there were circumstances under which the land that was sold could revert back to the family. The Jubilee year being one of those mechanics and another thing being the right of the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer. A kinsman of the family that sold it could, if he performed the necessary acts as detail on the exterior of the scroll, would be able to redeem the land for the family. And the best example of that is the book of Ruth, in which that whole issue is a major part. And it's very important to understand the book of Ruth, or you'll never understand Revelation chapter 5 with a seven-sealed book and what Jesus Christ is doing, acting as our kinsman redeemer. We talked about that last time because of the virgin birth and so on. So when you think of the northern kingdom of Israel, that included the territory that was originally allocated to ten tribes. Judah represented, the house of Judah represented the territory allocated to Simeon and Judah and frankly part of Benjamin because Jerusalem's actually right on the edge there. Now, bear in mind, the Levites did not inherit land. They inherited cities, if you recall, from from the allocation in Joshua and so on. Because the Levites were a tribe apart. They did not have military service, and they didn't have land to inherit. The Lord was their inheritance. They did have certain cities allocated to them. Now, get the picture. Rehoboam has under his territory Jerusalem, the priesthood, the true worship. The northern kingdom that's rebelling is driven by idol worship. As the war starts, what do the Levites do? They abandon their cities and go south to Jerusalem because their equity, of course, is with Jerusalem, the temple, and all of that. So verse 14, the Levites left their suburban lands, their possession, and came to Judah and Jerusalem, for Jeroboam and his sons had cast them off from executing the priest's office unto the Lord. But we go on, verse 15, and he appointed for himself, that is Jeroboam, the king of the north, he appointed for himself priests for the high places and for the he-goats and for the calves which he had made. Bear in mind, the Torah has no place in his, he's, he's idol-worshipping, he set up his own priesthood system. He's abandoning the Torah, he's abandoning the whole tradition from Moses and the rest. But verse 16 is the one you might want to mark to return to when these issues come up. Because after the Levites, after them, Out of all the tribes of Israel, such as set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice unto the Lord God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong. Three years. For three years they walked in the way of David and Solomon. 
The point I'm trying to make is, under those conditions, what happened, the faithful to the Torah in the northern kingdom migrated south. Because that's where the true worship was going on. They were uncomfortable with the idol worship. So they abandoned the northern lands and went south. I don't think the scripture says this explicitly, but I also infer that those in the south that were not faithful, that wanted to seek idols, migrated north. So years later, when the Assyrians finally capture, when God puts the northern kingdom into judgment, it isn't that they are ten pure tribes that are captured by the Assyrians, but rather a collection of the nation Israel that were apostate. Follow me? So there really isn't a cogent, crisp collection of of wanderers called the Ten Tribes that somehow got lost in history and reemerged in Britain to become the throne of uh, Britain and all of that. There's a whole doctrine called British Israelism, and it's interesting, it's provocative, but it's just not true. Other than that, it's fine. So that keeps coming up when we talk about the Northern Ten Tribes. That's really erroneous. That's a that's a tragic label. Just like when you talk about the West Bank, that's a term of Israel's enemies. You and I should use the term Judea and Samaria. In any case, so much for the ten tribes. But to get the picture now, Isaiah is talking at a time that Assyria is emerging as the dominant world empire. We read in chapter 7, the early part, how Syria, don't confuse Syria with Assyria. Assyria is further to the east, the other side of the Euphrates. But Syria and the northern kingdom conspired against Judah, but God, through Isaiah, told them not to sweat it. They won't even exist for very long. So what, what Isaiah is going to do now in chapter 8 is pick up this theme and talk about the overthrow of Syria, Damascus, and the northern kingdom, the house of Israel. Its headquarters is Samaria. And he will do this for chapter 8 and 9. And again, just like the last time, right in the middle of this dirge of judgment based on the local politics emerges some interesting little elements that constantly surface in the book of Isaiah that go far beyond the local scene. But let's jump in. Chapter 8, verse 1, Moreover the Lord said unto me, Take a great roll, and write in it with a man's pen concerning Meher Shaal Hajbaz. Boy, Isaiah did not have a facility naming his kids. But the meaning of the name, the previous one meant a remnant shall return. This one means, <laughs> the translation is, is not a lot of help. Plunder speedeth, and the booty hasteth. <laughs> I wonder what the kids in school said about him. I suppose it means haste makes waste. Those of you who want to do some background on this, the historical background that Isaiah is talking about is also mentioned in 2 Kings 16, and roughly in that area, and 2 Chronicles 29. But in any case, Isaiah has two sons, and they're both named prophetically. The first one he took with them when he went to Ahaz and made this uh, prophecy about the, the virgin birth. The idea of naming him the remnant shall return was intended to be a light at the end of the tunnel kind of label. Because on the one hand, Isaiah is saying, hey, there's going to be a huge judgment coming. On the other hand, a remnant will return. And the kid was named to keep that in front of, of everyone. Bear in mind, Isaiah, again, to remind you, is high rank. Many of the prophets came from the rural communities. Isaiah was the opposite. He had access to the court. He has direct access to the king. He was on an intimate basis with the high priest. The vocabulary of Isaiah is greater than any of the other writers in the Old Testament. It's very eloquent. Almost every element in rhetoric emerges in Isaiah, from poetry to alliteration, you name it. You can make a list of all the techniques of writing, and they all show up in Isaiah. It's, an, it's, it's the high ground of Hebrew writing. But in any case, uh, 
Isaiah has these two kids that, uh, well, first of all, he's naming this one before he's born. He says, take a great roll, write it in it and, with a man's pen concerning Meher Shalal Hajbaz. <laughs> wow, that's a, I don't think I can do that twice. Verse 2, and I took with me faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jebrejekiah, and, uh, or whatever. <laughs> so in other words, he writes this beforehand. And then he says, I went in unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And then said the Lord unto me, call his name, Meher Shalal Hajbaz. I can hear your mother calling, yeah. <laughs> Verse 4. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spake also unto me again, saying, For as much as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh that go softly, and rejoice in Rezin and Ramalia's son. Now therefore, behold the Lord. And he goes on. Let me explain a little bit. The waters of Shiloh, that's waters of peace. It's idiomatic of welcoming the waters of peace. And rather than that, they rejoice in Rezin and Ramalia's son. In other words, the people are favoring this alliance that Ahaz was trying to cook up with Rezin, who was the king of Assyria, and uh, Ramalia's son, who was the, that was Pekah, who was the king of the northern kingdom, which God was saying, don't get into those alliances. You don't need to. I'm going to take care of it for you. Verse 7, Now therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river. Now in this case, the river is the Euphrates. And on the east side of the Euphrates was Assyria. This is the empire emerging, and that empire would be used by the Lord to conquer not only Syria, but also the northern kingdom. And that occurs in about 722 B.C. Up upon the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria in all his glory, and he shall come up uh, over all its channels and go over all its banks, and he shall pass through or into Judah and shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck, and the um, stretching out of his wings shall fill the breath of thy land, O Emmanuel, and so on. Verse 9 is regarded by most experts, most commentators, as a Shifting of gears. It could fit into the whole dirge he's talking about here, and yet the scope of the language seems to go far beyond the particular thing that Isaiah is dealing with. It says, associate yourselves in the King James, or maybe more precisely, make an uproar, O ye peoples, and ye shall be broken in pieces, and give ear, all ye of far countries. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. The take counsel together also means, by the way, devise a device, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way the people saying, Say ye not a confederacy, or more precisely, a conspiracy, to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye, either fear, nor be afraid. In other words, Isaiah and his supporters are getting a lot of criticism because they're, they're selling a very unpopular view. I'll tie some of this back when we get to chapter 9 because there's an Armageddon tone to this too, and I'll come to that. But the primary reference here is the issue of the Assyrians, the fact that Isaiah is saying, don't make a confederation, but rather let the Lord deal with it. If you want an application verse from the evening, verse 13 fits pretty well. Because the counsel is, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And I think we're all guilty 
of seeing spooks, fearing other things. And what Isaiah is saying, which is the same thing that First uh, Peter 3.15 says, and uh, also Isaiah will pick up this uh, emphasis later in this book, is the idea that the only one you should really fear is the Lord himself. Sanctify the Lord. Set apart the Lord of hosts himself. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense to both of the houses of Israel, for a trap and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That language sound familiar? Yeah, the reason it does is that uh, that comes up in Romans chapter 9 and 1 Peter chapter 2. Those phrases are, uh, if you're familiar with both those epistles, both Peter and Paul draw up on Isaiah. And uh, if we tracked each one of these phrases in the New Testament, we'd, take, we'd be page-turning all evening. You, as you go through Isaiah, you'll find, if you've never read Isaiah, you'll find major portions of it sound awfully familiar. And that's because the New Testament writers draw up on it so frequently. We'll take a couple of examples forthcoming here. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. See, now this is a case where the word Israel is used for the whole nation. That's another thing I wanted to caution you about, is the word Israel can be used denotatively to be the northern kingdom. The name Israel can also be used connotatively to mean the whole nation. And uh, the house of Judah, of course, being, even though it's a tribe, it speaks of the the house of Judah, the southern uh, portion of the kingdom. A synonym for the northern kingdom, which is sometimes called Israel, is also Ephraim. Of the ten tribes involved in the north, Ephraim was the dominant one, so the word Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, is often used as the label for the whole northern house. So be alert to that. But in this case, we have the stone of stumbling. Who is the stone of stumbling? Jesus Christ, you betcha. And the rock of offense. One of the things you can do sometime when your spirit draws you is take a concordance and do a study of either stone or rock throughout the Scripture. And it's one of those places that will teach you or instruct you, you'll get the flavor of the fact, that these 66 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years are a single message system. And again, one of the examples of this, of course, is the use of idioms. If you want to give it a fancy name to impress your friends, they call it the principle of expositional constancy. And all that means is these idioms are used, whether it's by... uh, Moses or Isaiah or Paul or whoever, consistently, same idioms, are used in general with consistency. As you know, my main preoccupation with the Scripture is that these 66 books are a designed message system. I believe every uh, number, every place name, every detail is there by engineering, by design. And one of the great discoveries is to recognize, to, to discover that every page, every story, Every detail, every genealogy is designed as an, as an integrated whole. And every detail in this book and every page points to Jesus Christ. That's a glib generalization, but the discovery of how vividly that's true is one of the great exciting things about the book, to realize that it transcends time and space. Not only is it a singular message system, but it has its origin from outside our time domain. It demonstrates its divine origin by writing history before it happens. Not just the ancient history, but history that we're seeing unfold before our very eyes. Whether it be the 
the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the city of Babylon, 62 miles south of Baghdad, or whether it's the emergence of a European superstate, what have you, it's all laid out. And that's what makes it breathtaking. That's one of the things that makes it breathtaking. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, have not come to destroy the law but to, but to fulfill it. He says, not one yacht or one tittle shall pass until all be fulfilled. A yacht or a tittle being a, a crossing of a T or a dotting of an I of the Hebrew script. The rabbis have an expression that we won't understand the text until the Messiah comes. And when the Messiah comes, he will not only interpret the passages, he'll interpret the words. In fact, he'll interpret their very letters. In fact, he'll even interpret the spaces between the letters. And as you know, when I first heard that, I thought it was a colorful exaggeration. But the more I study, the more I discover that it's very literally true, and it's exemplified by Matthew 5, 17, and 18. But here again is one of those, one of those ways you can start to sample that. Take the term stone or rock from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, and you'll discover it all ties together. The, the climax of that, in, I think it's 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul really elaborates on that. That the rock in the Old Testament, the wilderness wanderings, speaks of Jesus Christ. When Daniel sees his vision in Daniel chapter 2, the stone that was cut without hands, smiting the image. Same stone, stone rock, it speaks of Jesus Christ. You get more mystical, you can take the term blood. The first seven appearances of the word blood in the scripture lay out the whole redemptive plan. God's plan for redemption. You can take almost any one of these words and, and a word study following it through will be revealing. Okay, verse 15. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait upon the Lord who hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwelleth in Mount Zion. So again, Isaiah alluding to these two children, one of which uh, uh, speaks of the remnant shall return, the other one speaking of the coming judgment, the taking of spoil that's eminent. Verse 19. And when they shall say unto you, seek unto those who are mediums. I think the term today would be channelers. I love this passage. It's great. And, and to, unto wizards that peep and that mutter. You know, <laughs> it's hard to improve on the King James, in my opinion. When they shall say unto you, seek unto those that are mediums and unto wizards that peep and mutter. Should not a people seek unto their God? Should they seek on behalf of the living to the dead? How absurd it is. You know, it's interesting, you know, as I grew up and as I was reading the Bible, learning things, I could never quite relate to some of these injunctions. You go to Deuteronomy 18. In fact, we probably should, just to emphasize what's being talked about here. Turn to Deuteronomy 18. I could never relate to some of these things because they sounded so medieval, so uh, archaic. I never dreamed. I never dreamed. I, I never thought I'd see the day. When the widespread major topic among the so-called intelligentsia are those same topics. New labels, we call them channelers, the new age, what have you. It's new labels for the same old heresies. Dangerous stuff. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who maketh his son or daughter pass through the fire, or who useth divination, or an observer of times, a phrase referring to what we call today astrology, among other things. 
or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter of mediums, or a wizard. That's the ones that go peep and mutter, I guess. Or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the materials that are being distributed or the exercises and the instruction that go on in the California schools to your kids. But they're taught in school, officially, in this state especially, but across the country too, I think, to understand how to find their spirit guide. There are all kinds of exercises that are encouraged in the early grades in school, developmental, presumably, exercises that are setting them up for this kind of thing. If you haven't gotten into it, I encourage you to do some homework, find out what's going on in school, but be prepared for a shock as to what we're the kind of conditioning, the kind of programming that's going on on the kids emerging out of our schools in the state. Frightening. These things are called entries by the technicians. I don't, you may recall the movie uh, The Exorcist. And I remember when Walter Martin was uh, starting to do some research on William Blatty to debunk it, he was startled to find that he'd really done his homework. That uh, while he didn't agree with the way the movie went, and the ending particularly, it was interesting that that was based on a case study. Several put together. Valid research. How did all that start? Obviously, the movie took some dramatic side roads, but the main point is it was a valid case study in New Jersey. And it's interesting, what starts all that? A Ouija board. These things are dangerous. Fooling around with some of the New Age things are dangerous. It's not just a question of heresy and a divert, you know, heterodox approach to life or whatever. There, it's far deeper than that, far more frightening than that. Dangerous stuff. And if you're interested in this area, there's obviously a number of experts. One of the ones that impressed me is the writings and tapes by Joanna Michelson. That's Hal Lindsey's wife's sister. Bright lady, a lot of background, dynamite stuff. I love one of her recent tapes. Her title of the tape is, Can You Truly Find a Happy Medium? (laughs) You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.